This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle, a writer, book lover, and the director of NIU STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an educator and engineer and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today on the STEM Read Podcast, we're going to talk about swearing. We're also going to be swearing a lot. If you are easily offended by swearing, stick around, because we're going to explore the linguistics, history, and culture of swearing, and examine what we can learn from our evolving language in an episode we're calling The Rise of Fuck. Our guests today are linguist and NIU alum Melissa Wright and author M.C. Atwood, whose latest book is the YA novel The Devils You Know from Soho Teen Press. The Devils You Know tells the story of five high school seniors who get trapped in a demonic house during a field trip. The horrors they face reveal their darkest secrets and their truest selves. So here at the STEM Read Podcast, we look for books that have a great story and a connection to STEM that we can explore. We purposely pick popular fiction, non-required reading, and things that might not necessarily be used in the classroom. Often the books have strong language. If you find yourself facing the robopocalypse or a zombie horde, you're probably going to drop an F-bomb or two. Yeah, so usually I don't worry first about the language. I start with a good story. I think the book that was debated about the most in our office is a should we use it, shouldn't we use it, was The Martian by Andy Weir. And if you're not familiar with The Martian, here's the opening of the book. I'm pretty much fucked. That's my considered opinion. Fucked. The Martian is an amazing book. It tells the story of Mark Watney, an astronaut who's stranded on Mars. His team has thinks he's dead, has left him, and there is no help coming for several years. The book is great because it explores science. It talks about global cooperation to get this man safe back home. I love the themes, but ah, oh, that first line. That first line. <laughs> And so I, I kind of passed it around the office and I said, what do you think about this? And some people said no right away. Like, you, you can't use that. There's, there, no one is going to allow that in high schools. And, and I was like, oh, but it's so good. And so I asked around some more. Um, basically, I was waiting for the right person to, you know, agree with me. And um, so I gave it to my mom. And my mom is a preschool director. And my mom said, well... If I was stranded on Mars and no help was coming and I was probably going to die, I would say I'm pretty much fucked. So, yeah, I think it's an, an appropriate line. I would just use the book. And I was like, well, if it gets the preschool director's blessing, then might as well use it. It's a winner. <laughs> it's a winner. I remember when you told that story for the first time to a room full of teachers and I knew it was coming. And I still sat there nervous because you were about to say fuck to a room full of teachers. And when they laughed, it was like, oh, all right. The session from that point on was fantastic. But we, we didn't get kicked out of the conference. Didn't, they didn't yeah, immediately stand up and slide their books off the table and go storming out. They were like, yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> Fucking hey, we can let our hair down. Um, so uh, one of the recent books, too, that was challenged for us was Feed. So we had a school back out of the Feed field trip because their administration read the book and thought that the language was just not appropriate for their eighth graders. And, you know, we were not going to say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> but we said, did you read the book? 
you know, let's think about what the author is doing and why he chose the language that he chose. There is so much language in that book because he's he's doing something, he's showing character, and he's exploring the de-evolution of language. So we're doing a lot of swearing today and, and talking about books that do a lot of swearing too, because one, I think swearing is fun and interesting, and two, I think we need to explore linguistic shifts and the culture of swearing. If we can do that, if we can start a dialogue about what these books are, what these words are, what they mean to us, then maybe I think we can learn more about each other and grow our empathy for other people. My name is Melissa Wright. I am in Denver, Colorado. I recently got my master's in linguistics, and since receiving my degree, I have been working at a digital marketing firm here in Denver doing content analysis and keyword research and analyzing search engine algorithmic responses. So what is the function of swearing in language? So a lot of times the function of swearing in language will be to kind of add emphasis to something or a lot of emotion or feeling. A lot of people, they wouldn't necessarily stub their pinky toe on that, you know, little corner of the coffee table and just say, oh gosh. (laughs) So, um, you know, a lot of times it's just that emphatic response that I think people are just, they naturally want to have. And a lot of cuss words, they have very kind of emotive and harsh sounds. You know, the F word, for example, it begins with that that hard, like, you know, sound, the F sound, and then it ends with that, like, you know, it really allows you to kind of get out aggression and things like that. So cussing serves a lot of times, I think, to add emotion, not only by conveying them like a message, but also by allowing us to kind of utilize our articulatory capacities to, you know, express anger and just kind of feel better. And I'll just say right now, we can, we'll just swear if we're talking about swear words, you can say the word. We won't. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I was saying that. I was questioning it, so <laughs> yeah. How has our culture's acceptance of swearing changed throughout the years? Particularly in American culture, millennials, I think, are kind of changing the landscape of swearing. I was reading a study recently, and it was surveying a few thousand Americans. A good portion of those were baby boomers, and a good portion were millennials. You know, the vast majority of millennials were saying that they didn't think cussing in the workplace was even a big deal, um, and they said that they would do it quite often. 45%, I think it was, of baby boomers reported that they think it's too comfortable and casual and not appropriate at all. So I think millennials are definitely taking charge of their language and using it to express emotion and to convey, you know, personality traits and things like that. And I think it's definitely shifted. You can even see it, you know, in radio. For example, I remember being younger and you never would have been able to say bitch or shit or damn on the radio. And then I remember a couple decades ago, I remember seeing a shift and saying, well, I've never heard damn on the radio, but they just said damn. And then, you know, now you can hear bitch and things like that. So even the words we censor, and while I think they still are considered swear words by most people's standards, they're not necessarily as obscene. So let's let's go back a little bit. So how did words become bad or good? 
That's actually a really interesting phenomena. There are what we call semantic shifts in languages. For example, uh, Britain, I had um, a friend from Britain. He would get in trouble when he came over to America quite often because he would use this obscene word. I'm not always comfortable using this one, but it's it's the C word. But they use it over in Britain just like we use the word dude. They say, hey, dude, how you doing? But it's the C word. And so he came over to America and started referring to people he got to know by the C word. And people <laughs> <laughs> very, very offended. Uh, and that was such a foreign thing to him. Like, he didn't think it was bad at all. You know, so there are these things called semantic shifts where something can, you know, have a pejorative shift, which is kind of a more negative shift, or it can be ameliorated where it has like a more positive tone. The word, um, the one that's coming to me right off the bat is monosyllabic or monosyllable. Back in the day, colonial times in America, that was actually a very derogatory word for a woman to call her a monosyllable. It was not okay at all. And now we only hear monosyllable as for talking about a word with only a one syllable. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to describe that's the type of swear word. Does it fit into that category? Not that it was the swear word itself. What? Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. It's gone through an entire shift. It's, you know, ameliorated a bit, but it's also gone through an entire shift in that we don't use it to refer to a person at all anymore. And languages are always changing, and that's actually one of the key characteristics of language. You know, if you ask most linguists, they'll tell you it's not really considered a true language if it's not consistently shifting and changing. So words can become more offensive over time or less offensive over time, and just depending on the culture of the time and how people start to see certain references in words, you know, that determines whether or not it becomes a cuss word. So what did it mean? So monosyllable... Specifically, it was like calling a woman like a bitch. I think I have a new hidden curse word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm like writing this down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Do you have any other good uh, colonial curse words that we could use? <laughs> oh my gosh. Curse words, I don't know about. Um, <laughs> there are definitely some colloquial terms that we would never use nowadays, mostly racial phrases and terms like that, that today would be considered extremely offensive. But back then, they were just used in everyday language. So again, it's just another sign of cultural shifts. When you see that a lot in what books have been banned, and it's usually <laughs> because there's leftover language that at the time when it was written was just everyday language. And now when we put it in today's context, it's offensive. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say to people who are offended by different words? Is What kind of dialogue can we have about it? You know, I think it is really interesting that you bring up it being a dialogue because I personally believe that that's exactly what it should be. We assign meaning according to, you know, social and cultural norms. For example, if food really meant food, then food in every country would be referred to as food. We wouldn't have to need translations between different languages. The F sound, the U, and the, the D sound, they do not semantically and inherently mean things that you need for nourishment to put into your body. So we very much assign meaning to sounds. And that's one of the interesting components of language is that people do take great offense or they hear a word and they think it's such a great compliment. Someone might not understand why it's offensive. Anybody who's unaware of that, I think it's very important for them in order to understand other just basic human experiences. I, I do very much think that being able to speak about and offensive words and understand why people assign such 
extreme meaning to them and why people can take such offense. It serves the potential to very much allow people to have empathy for and also understand both sides, right? So why do you get so offended? Why don't you get so offended? And I think it could provide the chance for people to meet in the middle and communicate more effectively. Kristen's pulling out some <laughs> Some oh, articles that she read. <laughs> no, it's been interesting. It seems like over the last maybe month or so, I've had more swearing articles appear on my Facebook feed or on my Twitter <laughs> feed. And the one I just saw was people who swear are more honest than those who don't. And I'm like, man, I'm honest as fuck, man. <laughs> 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 no, and it was it was interesting. If you it's something to do about the ability to swear means that you're you're less likely to lie. And another one that I saw was how a lot of times we think that people who swear are less intelligent because they're vocabulary poor. But mm -hmm. there's been some studies that have shown a correlation between those who have a high fluency or a high level of vocabulary also tend to swear more. It is really interesting because if you think about it, the people who swear being more honest, I think that definitely, without reading the article, I, I see the truth in that, you know, because if people are swearing and they're comfortable swearing in most environments, that means they're not censoring themselves all the time. Whereas, you know, people who think it's offensive and may have might have the urge to, you know, say fuck or shit or damn or whatever, they're going to be censoring themselves because they don't find it appropriate. So then they're going to be consistently kind of filtering their words, their language and their messages. Um, so yeah, I definitely see the truth value to that. So English actually, I'm sure everybody knows that has prefixes and suffixes, you know, beginnings to words and ends to words that you kind of tag on to change the meaning of it. English, you know, other languages have this, but English only has one infix, which is where you tag on a little word in the middle of another word. And that word is fuck. <laughs> so you can only <laughs> do this with fuck. And so for example, I can say absolutely, fan fucking tastic, but that's the only word in the English language that you see us being able to add in the middle of another word, and it's purely for emphasis. And so I think I would argue that that actually enriches our vocabulary. <laughs> Some people might disagree with me, but it's it's a really cool phenomenon that we've taken this word that already emphasizes emotion and meaning and things, and we we just decided, hey, we're going to tag this on in the middle of certain words. So yeah, it's it's very interesting um, what cussing can do for the richness of a person's <laughs> vocabulary, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Unfucking believable. <laughs> Absolutely. I know it is good to say. Well, do we want to talk about fuck in general? <laughs> um, like why? I, I feel like that's like the big bad word, right? It's Yeah. The, aside from like the C word and some of those words that seem more taboo. But mm -hmm. you know, you've you've graduated to major swearing when you can say fuck and <laughs> and say it with a straight face. So do you yeah. um, do you want to talk about the history of fuck and and more about what what it does in in the English language. Fuck is a really interesting one um, because it is seen as so taboo. But again, I'm kind of seeing this cultural shift and people using it all the time. You know, and again, I know I gave this example a little bit earlier, but I think the appeal to fuck is that it's so applicable, right? So you can use it as a noun, it can be a verb, it can be an adjective, it can be an infix, as we just talked about. So you can use it as like a part of every part of speech in your sentence, like three fourths of your words in a sentence could be fuck or a derivative of fuck. So there's that and you can use it to add all the emphasis you want and need. 
um, and be as emotive as you can with that word. Also, there's that inherent sound that I talked about earlier, that just kind of real aggression that you hear the like, fuck, like it just allows you to, to really take out your aggression using like your articulatory capacities. Sometimes there's um, no other word that really fits the situation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and it's so applicable. You know, I think the rise of fuck has been due in large part to its applicability to any type of situation or sentence. Yeah, I mean, you can make it a gerund. You can say fucking, you can say fuck, you can say absolutely, all of those things. And I used to, when I was in high school, I found this spoof. It was like an online dictionary reading of fuck. And it just was like this man being very serious, but he was reading off fuck and all the parts of speech that fuck could take the place of. And I, at the time, found it found it hilarious because I was just starting to cuss. But then I was like, yeah, that's, that's really true. I can use fuck wherever I want to use fucking fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I think you yeah. just uh, maybe found a name for the episode, too, The Rise of Fuck. <laughs> the Rise of Fuck. <laughs> it sounds very yeah, epic. It does. <laughs> the Stem Read Podcast. Dun, 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 dun. The Rise of Fuck. <laughs> Um, so when you mentioned getting into swearing, is there a point where kids start to get into swearing? I know we have in, you know, being parents or being teachers or gatekeepers in any way we're, you know, we want to protect the children, but, but when do kids really start experimenting with language in that way? You know, that's a really good question because, um, language acquisition has, it's one of the main questions in linguistics. How do humans have this seemingly innate capacity to pick up any language, you know, that they're just dropped into and become fluent by, you know, age five or six. It's it's interesting because, um, you know, you see all those examples online of a kid trying to say truck and he ends up saying fuck instead. And the parents freak out, right? They're like, no, 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 don't say that. Don't say that. But they're the ones assigning the meaning. The kid is just trying to figure out how to say the word truck. And so people might argue that that's like a cuss but to the kid they have no you know intuition about that having a negative meaning at all I think normally that starts later you know when kids are able to start kind of mimicking actual conversations you know like two or three or so if they hear it I I, for example was at my four-year-old nephew's birthday party um this was about three years ago he was opening a gift and he couldn't get it open because it was taped too tightly. And he, he just <laughs> threw down the box and he goes, fucking tape. <laughs> Everybody in the room was trying so hard not to laugh because, you know, don't we dare encourage it. But um, he had heard it on the bus because one of his friends at, you know, on the bus to preschool or in a carpool to preschool had heard it from their older sibling. He had no idea that it was a quote unquote bad word. He just knew that, hey, I can use this to add emphasis to what I want to say and I'm frustrated. So I'm going to say fucking tape. <laughs> um, as far as consciously experimenting, that seems to happen from my studies and experience, you know, around junior high um, when they realized that, okay, my my, my parents aren't necessarily going to tell me not to right away and how do I figure out what I think is bad and what are my friends doing and how do I communicate effectively with my friends, that kind of a thing. So yeah, it's it's this really cute little progression of you know accidentally saying something to hearing it and not knowing it's bad but using it purposefully to being able to kind of use it in conversation and understand where your boundaries lie with your social circles. I remember my own kids, they would correct me like in late elementary and I tried not to swear around my kids too much mm -hmm. but it would 
it would slip. And so late elementary, early middle school, they'd be like, mom, don't use that kind of language. And so then as I filter myself now, as they're 18 and 19, it'd be like, mom, come on, we're in high school or I work, you know, I work in a factory. It's like, we've heard it. And yeah. my son will even say, just you don't censor yourself on my account. Let it fly. <laughs> I'm like, yep. you know, it's a good parent-child bonding experience when you can swear together. <laughs> yes, very much. <laughs> right. And yeah, my, my daughter tells my husband not to swear. <laughs> um, she's four. She just turned five. And so oh. she said, Daddy, if you think you're going to swear, you should sing this song don't swear, don't swear, don't swear, don't swear. (laughs) And he's like, okay, I'll do that. Yep. Yep. (laughs) We talked about this a little bit, but I want to explore it a little bit more is that the different contexts when swearing is more appropriate or less appropriate. I know last time we talked, you were talking about the more comfortable you are with people, the more you might tend to swear in front of them. So so how do people tend to learn this context is fine for swearing, this maybe it isn't? And how do we make that switch in our in our minds? You know, I think it's definitely a matter of experimentation. In the workplace, you know, I've mentioned and it's been heard now that I cuss quite a bit and I'm very comfortable with it. But if I'm talking to a client on the phone who I've never or had very little interaction with, I'm not necessarily going to, you know, get them on the phone and say, hey, what the fuck is up? (laughs) So um, I normally wait, you know, in business arenas to, you know, wait for them to bridge that barrier. In matters of business and being seeming professional, I think it's definitely a matter of experimentation, you know, but with a group like a family, you definitely know in your family just because you've grown up around them, you know who's who and who what each person's personality is. You know that certain people at the table at Thanksgiving are definitely not going to be okay with a slew of cuss words at the table. Or maybe they are and you feel comfortable saying it. I think it's definitely like a matter of just getting to know people and understanding where they're at. And, you know, there have been studies done, cognitive cultural studies and cognitive psycholinguistic studies that discuss the theoretical notion um, and some experiments play this out that people have different sort of frames that they operate off of for different scenarios. So for example, if you tell me you went to a restaurant, I'm going to be able to fill in the gaps if you're telling me a story about what happened to you at a restaurant, because I don't have to um, know that you went to a restaurant and you know you ordered this, you sat down, you gave the waiter your coat, and then you ordered off the menu, but it took you five minutes to look at the menu, and then the waiter came back four times to fill your water. Those are all fill-in-the-blank kind of things that I can pretty much picture on my own. And I think the same could be argued for cussing, is that we all kind of have these frames for certain scenarios that we're placed within, family situations, work situations, friend situations, and we're very much aware of the other person's frame, and we're cognizant of their frame and how they're going to react to our frame, and it's a continuous back and forth. So I think that's definitely something to be argued for swear words, because you're not going to do it if you, well, oh, you or you might or it might be accidental or whatever. But in, in general, I think people probably wouldn't cuss and say fucking shit um, if they know for a fact that their friend is going to be uncomfortable with it. Cognitively, people are going to be very aware of who they're with and they're going to be doing a lot of experimenting, pushing boundaries, seeing where the other person's boundary lie and feed off of each other in that way. Well, I think that holds true with a lot of language. I know in 
when we work with kids and try to teach them, you know, what does it mean to be a digital citizen and how the way you speak to your friends via text or the way you would maybe talk to a teacher in class might be different than when you email somebody. One criticism of swearing is that it decreases your vocabulary. Is that true? Does swearing decrease your vocabulary? Does it make you less creative? Or desensitize you to certain things? I find that last part of the question really interesting because while you were saying it, it made sense to me that people who cuss a lot may not be as sensitive to certain stimuli as other people just because someone who says fuck all the time may not have as many um, quote-unquote ladylike sensibilities (laughs) as someone (laughs) who is very like constantly aware of that type of thing. I think it depends on what people think you should be sensitive to. If it's relational interactions and being sensitive to other people's sensibilities, then yeah, I think maybe there's an argument for the need to be sensitive and not offend anybody if you're wanting to have an open, you know, dialogue and maintain kind of like a open relationship there. But I don't I don't know that I believe that it decreases or limits your vocabulary if you curse a lot only because I think I mean I can see how it could be skewed in that manner because maybe if you cuss, you don't necessarily try to search for synonyms for, oh shit, when you stub your toe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Things like golly wally, gee whiz, and Jiminy Christmas aren't really necessarily used as much anymore. But but yeah, so I mean, I can see how it could be skewed in that way and kind of looked at in that manner. But I also think that cussing has a lot of potential. I'm seeing the rise on social media of AF, meaning as fuck, like I'm I'm millennial AF, you know, I'm millennial as fuck, that kind of a thing. And I I can see AF and those similar appearances, those abbreviations becoming their own words essentially in the future. So again, that's just part of language constantly um, evolving and changing and shifting. I found it interesting that the book you were discussing had a lot of cursing um, in terms of characterization. I think maybe the only thing to add with that would be that in novels, I think it's really important to allow different forms of language to take place for certain characters. So, you know, I do think that specific types of language speak to someone's experiences, their worldview, and just their personality in general. So I do think it's really important to be able to speak openly about why people, again, take offense to certain things or not, and what makes them talk the way they do. Because again, I I think that really helps in creating empathy and forming bonds between people. You just heard our interview with linguist Melissa Wright. Up next, we'll be talking to M.C. Atwood, author of The Devils You Know. So Kristen, did you ever think you'd be swearing this much on a podcast? No, it, it took me a minute to really get comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think it was interesting that in a podcast about swearing, we even the linguistic asked if she had permission to say the actual words. So you can see that the power that they have as a, over us, even as adults. We've been conditioned. These are taboo words. These are bad words. And we know that there are certain circumstances where you just can't say fuck. But then once you do, you're like, oh, it feels good. <laughs> so the reason that I wanted to talk with Melissa and then talk with MC Atwood was I think the devils you know uses swearing in a fun and interesting way. So in M.C. Atwood's book, The Devils You Know, you have five characters who are trapped in this demonic house. They are high school students who range from not really knowing each other to completely hating each other. And they all have their own dark secrets. And the book does an interesting narrative trick in that it shifts between the different characters' 
points of view. It's told in each character's authentic voice. I think that MC Atwood uses swearing and uses language to explore who those characters are and give you a deeper sense of each person. We're going to talk with MC Atwood and see exactly what she was getting at with great words like fuck a doodle do. That one's becoming in that's that's my new vocabulary word. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good for the teacher guide. Yeah. <laughs> Define fuck-a-doodle-doo. Use it in a sentence. <laughs> Write an essay about what it means to you. <laughs> it was that one nasty rooster in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> the most censored children's book. <laughs> fuck-a-doodle-doo, the rooster. All right, here's our interview with author M.C. Atwood. What made you want to be a writer? I actually didn't want to be a writer. In first grade, I wanted to be a writer. I had a poem published, and so I was like, well, clearly I was made to do this. Uh, never mind that the poem published right below mine was a six-legged cat picture. So, I mean, it was clearly like, you know, here's what little kids write. But, you know, I felt really proud of that. And so for a long time, I sort of considered myself a writer until I got to college. Um, and I went to the University of Iowa for my undergrad, and there's sort of a very specific way that you write when you go to the University of Iowa. That wasn't the way I wrote. So I just sort of thought it wasn't for me. And then I came out with an English degree and thought, well, what the heck do I do now with this? Oh, gosh, can I swear on this podcast? Yes. <laughs> swear away. <laughs> we had about a 15-minute long swearing fest with the linguist, so you you say whatever. <laughs> That is fucking awesome. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, well, what am I going to do with this English degree? And what I loved was editing. And so through hard work and not giving up inness, I guess, <laughs> I, uh, was, I became an editor at Llewellyn Publication. It took me about three years, but we started at the Young Adult Imprint Flux. I loved that job so much. And then I realized what I really liked to do was work with the product. I liked working with authors. I liked putting together this beautiful book. I um, decided that I wanted to teach. I wanted to teach college. And so I had to apply for an MFA program if I wanted to do this. And it turns out you have to write if you get into an MFA program for writing. And um, it was Hamlin's writing for children and young adults. And I just sort of, I fell in love with it. And I remembered how much I loved it. And my amazing mentors there and the program just sort of brought me back to this place where it was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is my thing. I kind of really like this. It's great. <laughs> I hear a lot of writers say that they wanted to write until they started writing at the college level. And they thought that a short story had to be a certain way about a certain type of thing. So when you got into your MFA program, did you find that you were writing more for yourself then? Yeah, I, I was. And I, I think part of the, the issue is when I was going to college, writing for kids wasn't a thing at all. It, it wasn't even on my radar that this was something that you could do. So when I went to, to write for the MFA, it was so freeing because if I got in, that was great. But if I didn't, it wasn't like I, I sort of hung my identity on this idea of being a writer. So I just wrote what I liked. When I look back at what I wrote to get into the program, I think I got really lucky they let me in that program. <laughs> But um, I think that the program did exactly what it was supposed to do, which was it, it, it trained you to look at your own stuff with a critical eye. And as an editor, you know, I'd, I'd done that for years, but it's a very different thing to look at your own stuff with that same eye um, and to sort of put the emotions away. And I think for me, too, that had to do with a sort of maturity level. Like, I don't know if I necessarily was mature enough in college to 
be able to step back and look at it. Sometimes I wish I would have come to it earlier or I wish I hadn't had that experience, but I think I actually, I don't know if I was ready for it then. Yeah. So what kind of stuff were you, what did you write to get in? I'm really attracted to anything dark and, and horry. I don't know if that's obvious from the devil's you know, but I think there was a doll in it too. Oh my goodness. Wow. It's always about a doll. <laughs> always a doll. What is that? Yeah. I think it was a punk girl who, where something came to life and she had to do something to conquer it. So I clearly have a theme <laughs> in what I'm working out for sure. Genre writing, I think, is is an amazing way to sort of delve into character. When I was a teen, I really wanted to read things that were dark like I was, you know? So I think that um, getting into the MFA program, I I sort of was like, this is what I want to write. I want to write this dark stuff for teens. And so did they encourage you to write horror or, or write more dark things? Yeah, they were they were just really good about working with where you work. So it was a low residency program, which means that every semester you work with an author, just one author, and you you go back and forth. They always, they encourage you to sort of go out of your comfort zone and to write middle grade and picture book. And I was just, I was such an asshole. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I'm writing YA and I'm writing it dark. And they were like, all right, whatever. (laughs) The dressing around what you're writing is just that, it's dressing. So the... The setting and the darkness or the lightness or whatever it is, is all about sort of getting to a core emotional truth with your writing. And so that was the thrust, right? So it was like, okay, so you have this setting, you have this this dressing around what this character is going through that is going to connect to your audience or that's going to connect in a human way with other people. So how do we showcase that? And how do we, how do you get to that? And how do you stay true to experience and to what it is you're trying to say or what your characters are going through. Right, absolutely. And I think that uh, The Devils You Know is certainly character driven. And I think you do a good job of moving between characters. So you have five different voices that are all telling the story from their own point of view. Do you want to give listeners a summary of what the book's about? Yeah, so it's about five teens with very different backgrounds and um, varying degrees of affection for each other (laughs) who get trapped into the tourist attraction called Boulder House where things come alive and try to kill them and basically steal their souls. And they have to uh, find a way to band together to get out of there. So why did you write this book? Where, Where did this story come from? I am obsessed with the House on the Rock, which is this (laughs) amazing attraction in Spring Green, Wisconsin. The House on the Rock is like America's subconscious sort of threw up into a whole bunch of warehouses. And (laughs) I mean, it's so weird. It's got all these different collections. Um, It's got dolls, which clearly are a thing with me, like really creepy dolls and carousels upon carousels. And there's, you know, the world's largest carousel is in the building. It was the entry point in American Gods to another world. It just It's this really weird building that I just sort of fell in love with. And going through it, I just kept thinking, why hasn't a horror novel been put in here? Why aren't all horror novels actually put in here? <laughs> and I, wanna, I really want to say very quickly that I love this place. It is not a demon. It's not evil. It's an amazing place. 
everyone should go there for sure. But at the time, before I started writing this, I was working on another novel and I just, I couldn't get it right. And I'd gotten all these suggestions from this wonderful agent. And so I felt really obligated to try to finish this, this project that I had stopped liking. And finally, uh, Molly Beth Griffin and my my writing group was like, stop writing that. <laughs> just mm. don't write that book you don't want to write. And it was this sort of really obvious but very freeing thing. And it was like, well, what do I want to write? And it was like, okay, well, I want to write about the house on the rock. And so when I was thinking about this place, I was thinking, like, this would be the perfect place to sort of figure out who you are. If you go into the actual physical house and the warehouses, it's really disorienting. You, you get into these different places and you know, there's this like streets of yesteryear and then there's like a squid and a whale and you're like, where am I? <laughs> when you're trying to figure out your identity, it has so much to do with setting. So what happens if we just take that away and we put people in this place where they're uncomfortable and where things shift? Like you kind of by necessity have to figure out who you are. And especially when you're talking about coming up against some sort of danger that is literally trying to take your soul away. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in thinking about this place, it just sort of, these characters just sort of came to me. Like what happens if you're stuck with these people that you don't really understand and you don't, you don't connect with necessarily. And, you know, I wanted to look at the way that we perform for other people. And then what happens when that performance is sort of moot and it just, it doesn't do anything for you anymore. So then, then who are you left with? And I think young adults are, are really, they're, they're looking at this constantly. So I thought this would be a really good setting to sort of explore those questions. I have to ask you, what's your favorite part of the House on the Rock? Right toward the end, there are these carousels of dolls that are just like super creepy. But on top of it, <laughs> there's also like the carousel has things like a goat footed pan flute player. You know, <laughs> And the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's like they threw everything into a few carousels and they're like, just look at this real quick before you go. And so <laughs> I think it was, it's that area because it just it's sort of rep is representative about the whole house where it's just like all these things where you're pretty much looking at it going what now? What? Yes. Yeah. Um, my my sister used to work at the Cave of the Mounds. And so she was always like, well, you have to go to the House on the Rock, but don't do all three areas in one day because it's too much. <laughs> and and my husband and I went and I was like, eh, you know, we're here. How often are we going to come to this? You know, we'll just do all three. And by the end of the second right. one, we were running to get to the end. And so I I really connected with the characters in your book, because if you're in that place, you're like, we are never getting out of here. <laughs> um, the other thing about the carousel is that I think that none of them are actual horses. And I, I was about, I was like five or six months pregnant with my first baby. So we were, I was super oh, nauseous gosh. by the end too. And I was just like, I'm going to throw up all over everything unless we find an exit immediately. So we were just, we were just losing our minds and trying to get out. But <laughs> you have to go. <laughs> you do. It's so disorienting. I can't even imagine going there pregnant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, it probably wasn't a, a good life choice. Uh, <laughs> but, but there you go. So I, I love what you said about as adolescents, we're, we're performing for others quite a bit. So the book is, is told, as I said, through the eyes of five different characters and your shifting point of view. So why did you make that choice? I was like, how can I make this as hard on myself as possible? <laughs> 
part of the question that I wanted to look in is, are we as bad as we think we are? <laughs> you know? I think um, my experience in high school was just always sort of feeling that everything I said was sort of dumb, you know, or too smart even, or just the wrong thing. I wanted to show different people like what it felt like to say something and then what it was to be on the receiving end hearing that, but through your own lens of whatever insecurity you're going through. And so I felt it was really necessary to have this sort of Rashomon-esque viewpoint of these things happening, like there's no absolute truth, it's all coming through a lens, and it's all coming through a lens of there's something wrong here, I'm doing something wrong, I don't know who I am yet. So it, to me it was, I, I didn't really want to, but it was like, well this has to, it kind of has to be told this way. and. The characters sort of came from that. Like they, they, I don't know. I hate it when authors say the characters just appeared, but I mean, like, <laughs> the <disappeared>, you know? <laughs> Writing is magic and you are a wizard. Right. <laughs> it's so, it's like so narcissistic to be like, I, I don't know, the genius muse brought me these characters. <laughs> Reading the story to me, it was that bouncing back and forth between the characters that made it so engaging because you wanted to hear what each character was thinking and their perspective. And I, I think I had that exact same conversation with my own kids about, you know, you might be worried about what you said, but I can guarantee you the other people aren't thinking about it because they're too worried about what they were saying. Yep. So it's yep. it's a real learning moment to say that, you know, it's not always about you. <laughs> Right. We say that in the office now, you know, when I'm like, why didn't they return my email? Did I, did my, yeah. Was my email wrong? Did I not make that proposal the right way? And then, you know, they're like, oh, I was out of the office on vacation. And we just, we always say that to each other. Like, it's not about you. It's, it's not, not about, about you, you, Kristen. It's not about you, Jillian. But man, so. could you imagine if we told our story from all of our perspectives <laughs> <laughs> through our own lenses? It'd just be like insecurities about our clothes. Exactly. Like, do they know? Do they think my boots are dumb? So do these boots make my feet look fat? Everyone thinks my feet are fat. Um. <laughs> Did I have that in my teeth the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> so it, I guess it never goes away. No. But if you're aware of it, then it gets better. I hope. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the voices that you use, because each character really does have their own way of speaking and their own way of thinking and and their own way of swearing. How did you create the different voices and how did you keep them so distinct? Yeah, I think that was probably my biggest challenge through the whole book was making sure that, that the characters sounded like who they were. And it, it took me about four years to write this book. And toward the end now, like if you said a sentence to me, I'd be like, oh, Ashley would never use that word. But at the time, it just, it took that many years, I think, to sort of live with these characters and to sit with them. So, I mean, the, the nuts and bolts of it was just honestly, like constantly revising and sort of um, spot checking. So like flipping through and, and you know, sticking my finger on a page and being like, do I know who said this? And if I didn't know who said it within two to three sentences, then I knew that I needed to do something different. And even by the time we went to sell the book, that I got some feedback like that from editors that were like, these voices sound alike. And so we pulled it again and I went through and I revised it. So I make my students do this a lot. I make them take their characters with them out into the world. If you're sitting right now on the couch near a TV, what would your what would your character be sitting like? How would they um, what would they want to watch? Would they want to watch anything? Like what would they say to you? 
So it was a lot of sort of exercises that had nothing to do with writing in some ways and just trying to listen to that voice talk at me through the day. Like I just tried to ask the characters what they might think. And with swearing, it was, it just was so a part of the characters that I chose, probably because I swear a lot, <laughs> you know, like nothing mythical there. Um, <laughs> but it was also, it became a tool for me so that, you know, Violet's, emotional growth had to do with swearing and um, figuring out who Paul was had to do with the fact that he, he didn't swear that much, but every once in a while he would. And then Dylan is just like one gigantic uh, swear word. So. <laughs> Very creative swear words, actually. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it became this fun for me tool to sort of be able to distinguish them and to use it for their, their arc through the, the whole story. So was there pushback on the swearing in the book? Yes. <laughs> there still is. I think I mentioned before, um, I was like, Dad, please don't give this to your church people. <laughs> you <know? laughs> They'll never look at you the same again. I think my editor wanted me to tone it down a little bit, and I did. But there were definite, like, especially with Dylan, I, I got kind of petulant about that, I guess. <laughs> No, Dylan would say this. And now that the book is out, there's a lot of pushback against Dylan's voice, too. But I feel a little unrepentant. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I chose it very specifically. And he's sort of supposed to be annoying. So um, it kind of worked for me. But when it came to librarians and like gatekeepers, I haven't heard a lot, but I'm not on the front lines of the, the selling. So it might be a whole different, whole different thing. So let's talk about Dylan. So, so why does Dylan swear as much as he does? I think it's a, it's a creative expression form for him. So Dylan wants to be different. He lives in this house where everything is supposed to be the same. You're supposed to believe the same. And yeah, so he, he's I think that his rebellion is language and appearance. Um, these are the two biggest ways that he's able to to express who he is at his core. And so I think swearing is this really delicious, delightful way that he has that, that doesn't hurt anybody, but is still like really against what he's being sort of taught in his home. So that it's this cool way that he gets to be creative, I think, and to at the same time be who he wants to be. Dylan swears the most, but I think he's also the most selfless throughout the story. Mm -hmm. He's he's the one who's most likely to sacrifice himself to help other people. And if you just, you know, you get a picture of this kid, you hear the way he talks, you see the way he dresses in school, and you would not think that that. So I think that because we're in their different heads, we get different ideas about them. And I think that you did a good job of exploring how these characters present themselves to the world and, and what their true natures are when they're put in this extreme, a house is going to kill me situation. He was the most empathetic, I guess, mm -hmm. for the other characters. It was always, oh, this isn't danger for me, but how can I make sure Gretchen's okay? Yeah, yeah. He was, he's one of my secret favorites. <laughs> like, well, and with the language too, he he doesn't even call himself the name that he was given. Like, so everything is this construction for him. But yeah, at his core, like he's a really, he's a really, really good person. And he is really selfless, I think. I think he becomes a sort of role model for the others too, which is, which was interesting to me because I hadn't like necessarily planned it that way. Yeah, so you've talked about 
writing for readers versus writing for gatekeepers. I think we know what kind of choices you made just based on uh, <laughs> the the theme of our show today, which we're we're calling the rise of fuck. We'll see if that <laughs> that makes makes the cut or not. But so, what are your thoughts on who do you write for, and and why do you make those choices? Um, first, can I say I'm so proud to be part of an episode that's called <laughs> <laughs> This makes me incredibly happy. Um, <laughs> I think I, I write for audience, so I write for teens. I think that I'm trying to work out a lot of things through my writing, too. So I'm almost writing for 16-year-old Megan, <laughs> you know? But to me, it's most important to reflect what teens are going through. So that had a lot to do with language and had a lot to do with swearing. Um, but it also had a lot to do with this idea of identity formation and who we are and how we walk in the world and how our circumstances shape us. And so language was sort of just the tool to get there. And so it wasn't even necessarily like I'm, I'm writing this as a, you know, a fist raise. This is how teens talk. It was more like, well, this is how we get to explore these issues. And that to me was probably the most important thing. I, I'm making it sound way more thoughtful than it was. <laughs> <laughs> you just like writing fuck. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, I don't know if I would have identified or the characters wouldn't have been as believable if they were walking through this house that wanted to, you know, kill them and take their soul. And they didn't at least say fuck once because, right. you know, that's that's a pretty extreme situation. And as yeah. Ashley says, fuck, I mean, you could just feel the emotion <laughs> in the way she said it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it just was, that's how they sounded. That's how they sounded in my head. And I, I, I mean, I swore like crazy when I was a teen and that was during, you know, the innocent nineties. So. <laughs> Did they even have swearing then? Yeah, I don't even <laughs> know. Dad it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the conference that I met you at, there was a, a teacher at our table, an older librarian. And after one of the keynote speaker had been talking about 13 Reasons Why, and the librarian stood up and she said, well, I don't think that book is good because of the language. And I would never give that book to a student because of all of the bad language. And I just think swearing is repulsive and it shows a lack of vocabulary and on and on and on. And then after she left, my assistant and I and another author were like, oh, fuck, did we swear in front of her? <laughs> but I think that, um, <laughs> you know, there there is that pushback but I think that you're missing something if you exclude books solely based on language and word choice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I clearly have a position on this. So <laughs> I will say that I understand why someone would feel that way. I really do. I also feel like it's a disservice that I think there's there's something in there where we're trying to protect our audience, which I think is really admirable. And, you know, like they are kids, they're still developing, but it doesn't do a lot for them, I feel like, when we go in that way. What's most helpful for teens is to have their experiences reflected to them in either, you know, that whole mirror or window way. To say that a, a book isn't worth it because there's swear words, I think is really, I think that's really an unfortunate stance to take. And I think it's going to get the majority of books off your shelf if that's, if that's how we're going to look at it. Because you used the word fuck so much, do you think that you had to be more creative or less creative with your language? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I think it had more to do with 
how does someone sound or how does someone think? Dylan was a creative swearer, so I definitely had to get more creative with him. <laughs> um, Ashley was pretty straightforward. She didn't have creative language. She just didn't think that way. Violet thought a little more metaphorically, so I think I was able to do different things with language there. So again, I, I just don't know if it's like, if going into a work and being like, just saying that creativity has to happen in a certain way is just, it's not the right question, you know? <laughs> like, it's not the right lens to go into a piece with. If I were writing someone who was very imaginative and it was first person, it would be a completely different creativity. So, of course, I clearly disagree <laughs> with the idea that if you swear, you're taking away from some other language. I think you're trying to get, again, to that deep emotional truth. And sometimes swearing gets you there. And sometimes it doesn't, but it's more of a choice of what what is best for the work and what is best for this character, rather than what's going to make me look good as an author or what is the best way to work language into this beautiful thing that may have nothing to do with what I'm actually writing about. So we've talked a lot about swearing. The other thing I want to talk about, too, is the diversity of voices that you chose. Why did you choose the type of characters that you chose? Why did you want to tell the stories of these students? So putting them in a house of horrors, <laughs> I thought, how interesting would it be if we had people who were very different and who kind of hated each other? <laughs> so that was the first place that I started. And then it was more like we perform who we are per day. And almost always, especially as a teen, I feel like you feel like you have these secrets, like no one knows who the real you is. In considering which characters to put in, a lot of it had to be like, how can I make these characters different? Socioeconomically, um, racially, sexual orientation I just sort of was like here here are the characters that I would want to be stuck in a house together to try to work things out and so I thought it, it was really interesting to to have these very different people have to come together even not having experienced the house on the rock I went through it with your characters <laughs> am I gonna freak out you're gonna flip out when you get to the room with all the nautical stuff and the giant squid because you're gonna be like there's no way out of here I will drown I'm going to drown. I am excited. I'm weirdly excited about this. Yeah, it's it's a it's an experience. It is for sure an experience. It's, it'll yeah. be a childhood dream come true. I'm like I'm like giddy just thinking about going through this, especially after reading the book. I'm like now I was looking at, at pictures online and like I've got to go. Yeah. I gotta go. <laughs> will you let, if you go? Will you let me know what you think? Because I'm always interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to take my two teenage kids and say, okay, guys, the house is going to eat your soul, so get along. <laughs> and go. And go. <laughs> I like that with just no context. Right. <laughs> so here's your tickets. By the way, the house is going to eat your soul. Um, See you on the other side. Yeah, I'll meet you at the end or not. <laughs> Good luck. It's been fun. <laughs> So this is a horror novel. It's it's described as an adventure horror, horror novel. There's a lot of running. There's a lot of demons and dolls that want to kill them. But at the end of the day, that's not really what the story is capital A about, right? What do you think your story is about? And what do you think the role of a writer is when you write for young adults? Meaning of writing, yeah. <laughs> um, Easy question, right? Softball at the end. Right. <laughs> 
Okay, so I'll start with my book, um, what I think it's about. I think empathy is a huge part of this. Just to go back a little bit, when I was trying to sell this book, some of the pushback I kept getting, and this is going to be a spoiler, I think, but not too bad, um, <laughs> but is that no one dies, and people were really disappointed. Jeez. <laughs> 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 and, you know, I get it, because it, like as a horror novel, you think, well, this is what, you know, kid, people die in horror novels, but to me, it was more interesting and more important to watch these people band together. So what I really wanted to look at and what I was hoping would come through was this idea that at the end of the day, no matter how, you know, as cheesy as this is, no matter how different we are, if a house is trying to kill you, we will probably band together and save each other. Um, and what I liked was the idea of, of not only did they come together to help each other, but they, they came to kind of love each other through this whole thing and to see each other's lives through their eyes, right? So that's another reason why I wanted to do the different points of view is because you watch them sort of understand each other a little bit more as every room goes through. And so now it's not like the performance becomes who they are and they are accepted as as who they are. And in terms of what, what our role is as a writer, this gets to be like a really tricky question and people have a lot of very strong opinions <laughs> about what that means. I think for me, it's about reflecting a genuine experience for my audience. So if I'm writing about teens, then I feel like my responsibility is to reflect what's going on and to give them a place to sort of go through something in a good way or even in a bad way. But I, I think when it gets tricky is when we start thinking about, oh, well, we, we should be showing them that the world is this way or we should be doing this or when any of the shoulds come with this sort of feeling of morality, I think we get into trouble as writers because then then we're not writing in an authentic way, we're writing with an agenda. And I feel like, first of all, teens can smell that 20 miles away and they're not going to want to read what you write. But also, I, I think it's a disservice. And I think that what's most magical is when you pick up that book and you're like, I see myself here. And now I understand the world and my life and who I am in a different way. And so as a writer, if I can provide that, that's great. But it's mostly I'm just telling the story so that if, if someone can connect to it, that's amazing. What, like, that's that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Drop the mic. It's fantastic. You know, I mean, that, that's that's the goal. Um, but I wouldn't presume to think that I I know how, how to live with a capital L. So, um <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think mostly it's just about, I know I've said it a million times in this, but it's that human connection and that understanding of a deeper emotional truth. I think that is really important to me in writing. You just heard our interview with M.C. Atwood, author of the YA novel The Devils You Know. She also writes as Megan Atwood and is the author of The Orchard Novels for middle grade readers. These novels include Ice Cream Summer and Once Upon a Winter. I'm assuming they have drastically fewer swear words in them. I would make that assumption as well. M.C. Atwood is also an assistant professor of creative writing at Rowan University. So I think that was a very successful swearing podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Way to use the infix. Thank you. We learned a little bit about grammar, a little bit about fuck, and a little bit about ourselves. It was a good language journey. For those of you who haven't tuned out uh, because of all the swearing, I hope that you did stay to the end. 
I think that, um, you know, what we say in writing is that everything should reveal character or advance the plot. And I think that swearing does have a place where you can explore character. You can definitely tell by how much people swear or how little they swear something about them. So MC Atwood chose to use those powerful words to reveal character, express emotion, empower speakers, portray authentic voices and cultures, and make characters more approachable and relatable. I think she was also trying to promote empathy. I don't know if I would have engaged with the characters as much as I did if they weren't using their authentic voice. If the swearing wasn't there, you wouldn't know that they were teenagers today because it's such a part of their language. In the classroom, there is a place for swearing. And I think you can use swearing to open a dialogue about language and see other people's perspective on their own lives and their own words. Don't let the use of strong language stop you from selecting a book that has a strong message. All right, Kristen, I think we are done AF. Thanks to our guests, Melissa Wright and MC Atwood. You can visit our show notes to learn more about our guests and their work. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.